I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of the Whanganuiatara, where I'm recording today. Uh, so this week we're reading chapters 17 and 18 through the theme of heroism. Uh, and it was like the perfect theme and perfect chapters to link up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do you have a story about heroism that you'd like to share? I do have a story. Um, and before I start it, I just wanted to offer a content warning as I'll be mentioning terrorism and gun violence. So if like me, that is something that you struggle with, you can skip the story and we'll just include the timestamp in the show notes for you. So yeah. you can skip on through it. So... This week marked the two-year anniversary of the Christchurch terror attacks, so I wanted to talk about that. I know it's a heavy topic, but as I took a moment on Monday to sort of reflect on the anniversary, I thought it kind of fit our theme for this week. Mm. And yeah, so here we go. Um, So for those who don't know, on March 15, 2019, a terrorist carried out a hateful shooting, or two hateful shootings, at Al Nua Mosque and Linwood Islamic Centre in Christchurch, while people were gathered there for Friday prayers. It is a day that is seared into the consciousness of this country, in part, I think, because it fundamentally fundamentally challenged the perception New Zealanders had of their country and what it meant to be Kiwi. It sort of forced people to confront an ugly part of society that no one really wanted to believe could mm-hmm. exist here. And that really shook people to their core. It's also a day that had an immense personal impact on me. There are moments from that day that I will remember forever, not least when the Prime Minister stepped up to the podium for a press conference at 7pm on that day and delivered the news that 40 people had lost their lives. It was like the air had been sucked out of the room, and you can hear it in the background of that live stream. Um, Usually on streams you can hear journalists moving around and you can hear the shutter sounds of people taking photos, but not on that stream. Not on that night. No one moved. It was just complete silence. Now, that was, of course, only the initial report. In fact, 52 people lost their lives in the attack and dozens more were injured. It remains a terrible tragedy and my heart goes out to our Muslim whānau who endured so much then and continue to feel that hurt and loss today. It should never have happened and they should have been safe here. But from within all that chaos and all that grief, stories also emerged, as they often do, of hope and heroism. Mm. And it's one of those that I wanted to share today. And it's the story of Abdul Aziz. So after the terrorists attacked Al-Nur Mosque, they went on to the Linwood Mosque where Mr. Aziz was attending prayer. As soon as he became aware of the shooting, he picked up an FPOS machine, which for those who aren't Kiwi and Australian is actually like a credit card machine that you would get at a shop when you pay with your card. And so he picked that up and he charged outside. So his whole goal was to just distract the terrorist. The terrorist ran back to the car to get another gun and Mr. Aziz actually threw the FPOS machine at them and then sort of ducked and weaved between the cars when he started shooting again. He picked up one of the discarded guns and pulled the trigger, but it was empty. And then when the terrorists went back to their car a second time, he charged again and threw that gun at the windscreen, shattering it. The terrorists then drove away, and Mr. Aziz said he chased the car down the street to a red light before it made a U-turn and sped away. Shortly after that, police forced the car from the road. Two explosive devices were attached to the car. 
This all meant that people who had taken cover inside the mosque were left unharmed, including Mr. Aziz's four sons, so he undoubtedly saved lives that day. He himself rejects the idea of being a hero. He thinks it's what anyone would have done. He has said that, and I quote, my life wasn't as important as the brothers and sisters and children inside. There are other stories from that day, from people who gave their lives physically to shield others, to the police officers who risked their lives when apprehending the terrorist, and it staggers me that people are capable of such bravery in the face of such hate. But being a hero isn't just making big decisions with life and death stakes, it's also having courage in the face of adversity. It's carrying on and helping others when things are hard. And in that sense, the survivors from that day are heroes too, and the family members who have lost loved ones, the neighbours who rushed to help, and the doctors and nurses who found their emergency room overwhelmed and just did the best they could. It reminds me of that Mr. Rogers quote that you always hear during dark times <laughs> when people say, look for the helpers, you will always find people who are willing to help. And I think you will always, always find people who will act bravely and courageously in difficult situations. Because we all have the capacity to be heroes. So I'll just end on this. Kia kaha, kia kotahira, assalam alaikum. Our strength is our unity, peace be onto you. So I'm sorry that is really heavy, but it was really important for me to tell that story. It's the right time to tell it. And thank you. And um, we don't say his name. He is not no. a shooter. He is a terrorist. And you're right to call him that. Yeah, absolutely. And I will never speak his name. He doesn't deserve it. I often feel like when you see those moments of heroism, you worry that you wouldn't be able to do that in the same situation. Like, don't worry about it. There, There's always going to be somebody who freezes. There's going to be mm-hmm. somebody who fights. There's going to be somebody who runs. Like, we just do the best we can. Yeah. Some people do stay and they are the helpers, but some people come back and help and some people just survive and that's the best they can do. And that is hard enough, honestly. Absolutely. And you can help in different ways. Not all help looks the same. It's what your capacity is in that moment, yeah. you know? So, Yeah. It just staggers me that there are people who are capable of these things in those moments. Because I I don't know. I've never been in that situation. I don't know how I would react. And Lord knows I never want to be in a situation like that. And I wouldn't want anyone to be in that situation. No, it's horrific. It's an unspeakable thing. It should not be something we ever have to speak about. Agreed. I am grateful for everybody who stepped up and helped. And I'm amazed at the courage and generosity of others to put themselves in in harm's way without a, a thought for it. Well, should we lighten it up and maybe talk about a moment of wonder that we had this week? Yeah, well, why don't you share your moment with me? Okay, so um, firstly, I want to preface this by saying that best friend is not a person, it's a tear, which is something I got from the Mindy Project and is 100% accurate. I'd agree with that. So I do have people who are on the tier and you are on the tier. Um, But then there is like the one person that you've known your whole life and who knows you. And this for me is my cousin, Sarah, who has literally been my person since, I mean, I I grew up with her. We're a year apart in age. Like my first sleepover ever was at her house. We lived together when we were in uni. Like we were each other's maids of honor. Like this is just the relationship we have. But we both have kids and we're both busy. And so, like, even though we catch up on social media, it hasn't been, like, talking. And mm-hmm. she lives in California. And so just out of the blue, I sent her a text. And then she sent me back a video message. And she was like, let's just do this. So all week we've been video messaging. So I'll record a video and then send it. Aww. And she'll record a response and send it. And it's really amazing. It's like all of these magical conversations happening from a distance of, like, 12,000 kilometers but because technology is advanced, we can actually do this. And you don't have to think about it because you can just 
think about what you want to say and then do it and then send it. So it's a bit like a text message, but you're actually still talking. And yeah, that's so lovely. I love that. Yeah, it's um, it's really nice. It's been really good. Anyways, that was my moment of wonder. Lots of little conversations. How about you? Um, I've been light on the ground for moments of wonder this week, I think, various reasons. But then I've been running more regularly because I'm doing a half marathon in eight weeks and I'm like, oh, I better start training properly for that. And, you know, sometimes it's hard and I don't want to, but I do Mm. it. And this week I've had a couple of really good runs where I just felt really good during the run and, like, I just had a really good stride and it wasn't hard and I wasn't super wrecked afterwards. I just felt really good. And it just gave me a pause to just appreciate what my body can do. Like, it's so cool that I can do this. And, like, even though I don't always want to, it's cool that I can. So I just needed to have a moment to appreciate that. I am super proud of you. I'm in the beginning of my running journey, so I'm still like, oh, gosh, I have a three-minute interval here. I will die. (laughs) Like, you are amazing for half marathon. That's huge. I don't have high expectations. Like, my goal is to do it in two and a half hours, so I'm not exactly going to be killing myself but yeah we'll see i could do 10 without stopping what so we'll see that's amazing that's where i want to get to that's like my goals to get to 10ks well i started the way you have like i started with couch to 5k i'd never run before when i moved back from the uk and i started couch to 5k and then i just kept going so yeah maybe one day you could do a half marathon i would not recommend it i don't know why i'm doing it (laughs) (laughs) because it gives you a deadline and having a deadline makes you actually get out of bed and do the thing truth Gosh, so much of adulting is just friggin' tricking ourselves into doing the right thing so that we're healthy. All in the service of capitalism. (laughs) We are our own zookeepers, and I don't like it. That's so true. Oh, man. But this week, at least, I've decided what I liked most about this book is that it is a really good yarn. It Mm. tells the story. It does exactly what a story should do. I love a story well told, and this is a really Mm -hmm. satisfying version of that Mm -hmm. so should i say what happens yes please do us some summaries okay so in chapter 17 islington needs door to use the blackfriars key to open the door of their prison so they can leave and stage a coup on heaven they use richard as leverage to compel her to do so the marquis arrives and briefly distracts everyone richard almost loses an ear richard and the marquis play croup and vandemar off against islington door tricks islington opening a door to an unknown place and the angel and croup are sucked through the portal vandemar follows willingly door is exhausted and everyone takes a well-deserved nap. And then in chapter 18, the Lady Serpentine and her entourage remove Hunter's body and the spear from the labyrinth. So much happens. I mean, that chapter 17 is just intense. (laughs) It's bonkers. It is bonkers. And also, can I say, how did Richard not know what the Marquis was doing? It was super obvious what the Marquis was doing. A child would figure this out. But I have to say, I did really enjoy how Richard sort of became part of their little back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know how Krupp and Venom have got their like tit for tat and Richard just like interjecting, interjecting. Yeah. And I thought that was quite fun. Yeah. Doing the constant undermining, which he's been doing for his own team the whole time by being like, that's not real. That's not true. Angels are nice. And now he's like, oh, well, I can just be annoying and useless to these bad guys instead <laughs> so well done richard <laughs> for applying that correctly finally i know so our theme was heroism and i had a lot of like everybody in this chapter basically was heroic i would agree with that <laughs> door having gotten a copy of the key made 
was heroic and pretending reluctance at every step taking them right to the edge of actually doing Richard damage and then relenting was heroic and Richard being absolutely willing to sacrifice himself so that door would mm-hmm. hold firm he was like I don't know what good this will do but I will stand in the way however I can mm-hmm. he was heroic and the Marquis even oh I wrote that down <laughs> yeah, as well on- where Richard's like don't do it we're not I'm we're not we don't matter and the Marquis like, actually, I matter very much, <laughs> yes. but I agree. Don't do it. Exactly. So good. It was so funny. But he was even then he was like, well, we have to draw a line somewhere. I just felt like everybody was a hero and everybody did so much heroically. I was very vindicated. I thought it was great, too. And, you know, like Richard arrives there and he just walks in. I was just a bit like, what do you think is going to happen here, Richard? And then he's immediately captured, right? <laughs> yeah. And immediately used as leverage against door. And I'm like, OK good job and then the marquee turns up and he's like i don't have a plan but i thought it was heroic for him to even go to even proceed despite not having a plan and he's like oh something will come to me and then here door just being her own hero being like i don't actually need you guys it's fine yeah it does help sell it a bit and i think this is where we see that door is actually not like a child she's a Mm. fully realized person who's capable of planning and surviving and existing and yeah she's smart and capable yeah this is her most london below moment isn't it where she looks so guileless but she's actually been completely deceitful in so many ways she didn't know who the traitor was so she organized this key replacement without them Mm. and she tricks everybody into thinking that she'll give anything up if they hurt richard yeah i'm sure she does care about richard but also like it was just useful yeah it was a hero for the ages I think it was interesting that Islington was like willing to use Dor's compassion against her. They were so certain of the fact that Dor was going to be compassionate and was going to like give everything up for Richard and they would just exploit that. I found Islington Mm. very interesting in this section just because compassion is so closely associated with him and it's like compassion is mentioned three times in that chapter. And it's weird because I'm like, does Islington actually think that they are compassionate or is it all just a performative thing? That's what I was struggling with too. This is a divine unknowable being does that mean that Richard Mm -hmm. this is from his perspective arguably right like that gentle Mm -hmm. compassionate smile is that Richard seeing it and knowing that it's wrong on his face is that just what he's reading but it's not actually what Islington indicates yeah because a couple of times there are mentions of there was honest concern in his voice he turns away obviously regretting the senseless loss of human life the frailty of mortals born to suffer and die and then like Islington doesn't want to actually say that torture them you know it's all kind of implied until the very end when he tells Krupp and Barrymore to kill them. That's the first time that he mentions any actual kind Mm. of violence straight out. And so there's this weird thing. It's like is he trying to be this kind of holy being? Is that part of this lie that he's telling himself? Like the whole Atlantis thing where he's like, meh, you know these things happen. And then he loses the plot like three seconds later when they're like, they deserved it you know, so I don't know. I find him very interesting and I'm just gonna call him a conflicted being. Yeah, so Islington is very, Islington is an odd one and really hard to understand. And I think that's like the point of the text is that like this angel is unknowable, but also what a human greedy desire to want to rule over a a dominion. That's so very crass. And then also the fact that he has that line where he talks about casting down those who stand in his way and he mutters 
bloody Gabriel for a start. That's such a petty thing. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Are we going to do this? And (laughs) unknowable beings are going to be like this as well? Is this high school? The smaller the stakes, the higher Mm. the politics, right? What you were saying about whether or not it's performative. Have you ever listened to music in like another language Mm. that you don't know and you hear words in English in it? I feel like that's what is happening when Islington makes a face or says something. The people, the humans, they translate it in their language. They're trying to ascribe meaning to it that maybe isn't there because Islington is not of this world. So he doesn't have the context maybe that's interesting like which is why you don't give a is it like a thumbs up you don't do thumbs up in Greece because it's the Mm. it's a really rude Mm. gesture I think but like for my kids and I that's like the I see you when they're doing a recital or something I give them a thumbs up and they give me a thumbs up and that because that's interesting because another thing I noted was on page 330 when the Marquis has successfully convinced Croup that hey you're not going to get paid and Croup goes up to to Islington and Mm. then there's the description the angel turned and looked down at him as if he were less important than the least speck of dirt and you've just you know sentences before that moments before that it was all Islington with charm and kindness and compassion so where did that compassion go in that moment maybe it was never there exactly yeah well and but you know he's not trying it on with Krupp and Vanamar because they're not people. He doesn't need to speak in that way in order to convince them. He's very good at sowing these, well, they are very good at sowing these seeds of doubt, right? Islington specifically wants people on side. He wants them, keep saying he when it's they, um, they want them to doubt themselves so that whatever Islington wants, there's this option there. bit like the Marquis, like I think part of the reason he takes himself to that that cave that citadel without any plan is because the marquis refuses to give up on any options before Mm, they're exhausted and he is himself an option and i think that islington's a bit the same in that when there's the possibility they might still win someone on side they're not going to screw that up by being cold and calculating when they could appear to care in some limited way and it's only when really when it loses it completely Mm. as we talked about about the atlantis thing that all of that falls away i usually like morally gray characters Mm. but i don't understand power hungry characters like i like being Mm. part of things (laughs) and when you are in power you are a part so i'd rather have connection than control fair enough it's interesting how islington kind of justifies their actions to themselves you know when they explain Mm. that i they need the key and the door and the opener and then they say you know i'm just going to be leaving a little bit early it's you know it's no big thing i'm just going to leave a little bit early this is completely justified. just like atlantis was completely justified so i think there's a little bit of evidence there i feel like door's ancestors portaled out of atlantis Oh, interesting. That's the impression that I got. Because otherwise, why would Islington have to use an opener? Mm. He would need a descendant of this family to be released from... Yeah, right? Like, Mm. having a descendant of that family from Atlantis to release Islington is a really beautiful... It it falls in line with having the key also be in London below. Mm, That's kind of the ultimate penance, the ultimate absolution, like you need the forgiveness of the people that you basically left to die in order to yeah. be redeemed so you can leave, right? Yeah. I was just going to say, I found it interesting that Croup specifically calls him he in this section. Didn't Richard as well? Yeah, I think Richard started doing it after Croup's, because Croup, when Richard first arrives and Dor says this is madness and then Croup has that line which is quite good, I quite enjoyed it. Um, on page 323 He's travelled so far beyond right and wrong, he couldn't see it with a telescope on a nice clear night. Mm, I underline that one too. I'm like, as if you know the difference between right and wrong. Although maybe Croup does, actually. He's very clear on what is right and wrong, but he just prefers to do the wrong thing. 
Right. He has integrity to his own morals, but they don't line up with, uh, well, anybody else's really. No, and even in this section, we saw Croup yet again being very proud of his work. You know, when he's trying to climb back into the room and he says to Dor, mm. I killed your family, not him. So he mm-hmm. wants that credit for this terrible thing that he's done. He's very consistent. Can we talk about Vandemar? I found his willing, willing sacrifice the hardest. I, like, he does not seem like someone who is incapable I find Vandermar fascinating, and the more the story mm. has progressed, the more fascinated I've become by his character. I think he's actually the most interesting character in the story, in a way, because mm. he's so powerful. And we've spoken before about how he's such a danger. He's got just like he seems really capable and dangerous and everything, yeah. but he still follows Croup around all the time when he really doesn't need to. Well, that's it. Yeah, he doesn't. And I got—I don't know if you got this—but when Croup was climbing over him, and there's that description being like hand over hand up Mr. Vandermar's back. I had this feeling that he was just going to leave Mr. Vandermar. I had that too. Yeah, I feel like Krupp is much more likely to be like, well, see ya. He's not going to sacrifice himself for Vandermar. That's why I thought it was so strange when the reverse did happen. And also the description there where he's like, there was no menace in his gaze and he said mildly, bye bye and let go of the table leg and just floated (laughs) out. But then I wondered, because he kind of caught up with like Richard describes it as seeing them becoming a big black blob and then the blob disappears. So I was like, did they wink out and go somewhere else? Did they do that transporting thing they did? Ooh, nice catch. I wouldn't have even thought that. Because you can read it that, you know, they just got eaten and died by the light or whatever, fell into the star, yeah. whatever it is. Or did they link up and then bloop, go to a different time or place as they are very clearly capable of doing? Which would kind of explain why Vandermar was like, oh, well, guess I'll go. Yeah. Might as well. And maybe they only really can do that when they work together or something. There might be something more to that. I had a theory about the origins of Krupp and Vandemar. I'm going to float tell. it past you. Please. Do you remember when they were at Belfast and they were talking about the market truce being broken and how both of the men were still alive, mm. but wished he wasn't or something like that? I think they are the two men. Oh, wow. That broke the market truce. Yeah. Like, I wonder if it's whatever happened to them, whatever they are now, is their punishment for that. That's so interesting. It doesn't seem like a coincidence. I don't think Neil Gaiman writes things without reason. He's a very careful author in that way, right? Mm. Like, everything in the book makes sense to the world or there's a reason for it being there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And they would have been turned into kind of like their base instincts, which was this violence and sowing chaos wherever they go. So that was my my theory. I've been kind of percolating that for a couple of weeks. I didn't I wasn't sure, but I wondered enough that I thought I would bring it to you. Mm, I think that's really interesting because they just fascinate me. I don't understand. Like, I don't understand what they are and how they're out of time and out of place. Yeah. And the relationship between them is crazy and there, yeah, that interdependency that I've never understood. Why did they need each other so much? It's never explained. There doesn't seem to be any love lost between them. Do you know no, what I mean? No, no. But they are together. I also just really admire how calm they are at all times. They're just kind of like so professional. They're kind of the epitome of professionalism, these they two. They are consummate professionals. And it's really terrible that the most professional people in the book are the like horrible killers. <laughs> 
of all the people to be like, well done on your professionalism with Scroop and Vandemar. I just felt like that. I'm like, you know, Vandemar is a vile, terrible character who's done terrible things, but I also just feel for him because he seems so long-suffering, and I'm like, why are you doing this? Yeah, he's just putting up with Kroop all the time. I don't know that I could. No. I did think it was a bit of an act of compassion, Vandemar going with Kroop. That's what I read it as. I thought that as well. Because he just sacrifices himself, and if you think about she's like, well, we're a pair. Off I go. Should we briefly talk about chapter 18? It's a very short chapter. It's where mm. Serpent goes with her handmaidens to get Hunter's body and the spear from the fleet marsh. Yep. I felt really conflicted about that. Do you think it's compassion that compels her to go and collect Hunter's body? Or is there something kind of nefarious afoot? I feel like it's compassion. I guess I want to read it as compassion. I want to read it as like, this is a promise she made to her lover that she would go and take care of her and find her wherever she fell. Because I've just been listening to the last of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and they were talking about Dobby again. I was thinking about like the way that... I know, I know. The way that Harry buried Dobby by, like, digging the hole himself without magic. Mm. And how Luna was there bearing witness to that. And I kind of felt that little twinkle of, like, that's a really similar thing that somebody who's not left their dwelling in a hundred years would go out to retrieve the body of this person that they once loved or maybe still love. I thought, how did she know that Hunter had died? And it made me think of Old Bailey and how Old Bailey knew that the Marquis was in trouble because he had the Marquis's life and it started going crazy, right? Mm. I'm like, what if Hunter did have her soul hidden away somewhere and Serpentine had it and that's how she knew Hunter was gone and why she went to collect the body because the text very clearly says you know Hunter's body it felt kind of almost dispassionate like this was just a vessel right so what if she has the other part to go into the vessel that's an interesting read I like that I kind of wondered if this was the obligation that Serpentine was doing as like an act of love for Hunter to lay her to rest in a less inglorious way yeah but like actually showing up and doing it no matter how hard it is is the is the act of love oh yeah i'd agree with that did find it interesting that she took the spear yeah that i that, I pinged that too i wonder if there's some significance to it because shouldn't it shouldn't it be richard's well i got annoyed that richard and the marquis left the spear guys come yeah. on <laughs> it seems quite important doesn't it? it seems like quite a special spear and you're just like well okay nah, we'll just wander off and go fight this immortal being i guess when i had a weapon right here I can't imagine. We didn't talk about it last week, but I imagined the down street as like, you know, the open mines mm, in Western mm-hmm. Australia. They're just big circles, right? Mm-hmm. I just imagined something like that, but underground. Mm, that's what I thought as well. And what's going to become of down street and the labyrinth now that the beast is gone and Islington is gone? Like, was Islington even doing anything? No, he was in prison, right? He basically couldn't leave or do anything. So yeah. So like, what's the point? I don't understand. It was all just a deterrence to stop people from going to Islington, but then how did people even know Islington existed? Because of the water and the phone calls. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that already. Yeah, but like, does this is the thing, like, I always thought the angel was a myth. Like, people obviously know about the angel being a being, but not being out in London below means that Islington has this mythical status. Mm. But was there anything about Islington that made London below more protected or safer? Was Islington still, even though they were obviously really bad at it, were were they still in charge of London below? Were they still the steward of this city? Yeah, it's interesting, because if you were imprisoning someone, then you wouldn't give them a stewardship, right? But what 
if it was a test that, you know, you failed with Atlantis, so therefore we're giving you London Below and we'll see how you go. And maybe if you yeah. do a good job, you can get out. It's just interesting. I think they should make a nice hanging garden from the, the open oh. down street. You know, put some plants in there. Be lovely. Some succulents. Mm. Get some ivy. Turn it into a maze. Sell some tickets. That would be great. <laughs> so much going on in this chapter. I wanted to talk about Richard charging on in there and then immediately getting caught and then be like, well, okay, we'll just use you to make door help us. And this idea that sometimes when you are a hero or you're doing something heroic, it actually compromises the main plan and makes mm-hmm. things riskier. Mm-hmm. It made me think of Harry Potter and the Department of Mysteries when he yeah. charges on in there and then it's like, ooh, mistake. Oh man, yeah. I'm about to start reading book five and I'm just, it's the hardest one for me Mm. because of Sirius. Like Sirius is lauded as this amazing character who like loves Harry and has all of this history. But then you find out he's actually like kind of a bigot. He treats his house self like crap. Um, And then he dies at the end and it's just like, you just, like, it's true that as you grow up, the people that you hero worshipped in childhood are human and they're flawed, right? Like, this is a really good way of showing that. But mm. the fact that he dies before they can ever have a conversation about all of these things just kills me. Yeah, I think there's something to that Department of Mysteries-esque, like, just grab a Thestral ride to the Ministry of Magic, see what happens. Like, Richard literally runs in like, I'm here to save the, oh, what do what are these chains for? Yeah, it's kind of like you believe the own story. Like, Richard's just, you know, Hunter's helped him kill the beast. He's like, okay, I'm the hero of the story. I'm going to go help Dawes. She needs help. And he rushes in and it's like, actually, no, this is not, no, you're not the hero of the story. Newsflash. Yeah. Dawes is actually the most hero. Yes. Hmm. But I think that Richard and the Marquis end up being essential, right? Oh, yeah, I do think they play their part. I do think she could have done it without them, though. (laughs) Oh, she absolutely could have. So what I see their value is is undermining Islington. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think they make Islington also a little bit more unbalanced. They, you know, because they needling him, he sort of needling them. They sort of lose the plot a little bit. It does not help that I looked up the casting for the TV show and found out that Islington was played by Peter Capaldi. So I'm like, yeah, I see it. <laughs> it cracks me up because I'm just imagining Malcolm Tucker and now Islington is just yes. this swearing kind of <laughs> loose cannon. I had the uh, same thought. I have a friend who is actually like Malcolm Tucker oh, and no. he is just, when he gets real riled up, it's just like watching Malcolm Tucker and I just love it so much. <laughs> That's one of those shows that, like, I really enjoy, but in super small doses. Oh, because everyone's terrible. Everyone's ter- It's like Veep. I've watched some Veep. Oh, and, yeah. like, everyone is just the worst possible version of themselves. It's really hard to watch. Nobody is redeemable ever. <laughs> and they don't learn from their mistakes. I know. Oh, gosh, that's the most frustrating thing about Veep. I'm like, we've done this before. What is oh. happening? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I just read a, a review of Ted Lasso, which was like, the best thing about this show is that everybody confronts things like adults and they actually deal with it. And I was like, oh, I want to watch it now. I mean, I've seen it. It's really the first few episodes that I watched are really good. So I will finish it. But I was like, this is what I want. Actual conflict resolution. <laughs> like, oh, gosh, I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> Modeling good behavior. Bring it on. Yeah, let's be adults about this. This is why I love Shit's Creek. Like, even though they also start off as kind of terrible characters, but there's such good, like, conversations are had and people talk about things and they resolve things. And yeah, they're all kind of, you know, have their moments, but it's just wholesome and everyone tries and I just love it. Yeah. Parks and Recreation does that really well. Mm, Yeah. 
I also like that people get to be, you know, wholesome and do things that they love. Like Parks and Rec in particular, people get to be quite lame and no one judges them for it. And it's like their strength as well. And I think we need more of that instead of being shamed for like big, massive nerds. (laughs) I sort of came of age in like the 30 Rock era where Mm. being a hot mess was kind of hilarious and like, yeah, we're all Liz Lemon. But I'm not really a Liz Lemon. I'm way more of a Leslie Nope or even an Anne. Like I'm the friend who is really supportive to the point of ridiculousness. <laughs> it was so nice to actually have a show where like being super capable at lots of things, but not everything. And also being a gigantic dork did not make you any less lovable. Or worthy. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, Leslie is ridiculous and I love her because she's super passionate about whatever she's doing, whether it's role playing the Founding Fathers <laughs> or... Um, adopting 37 pets to save a shelter that's like she just throws herself in but also she can't clean she's like a Mm. hoarder it's terrible but she's also the most thoughtful person in the world and will scrapbook you an album if it's your birthday she's like super extra in these things that she loves and everyone is kind of like exasperated by her and like roll their eyes but everyone still loves her and everyone supports her and everyone's there for each other and that's what I love like even really problematic characters like Tom you know (laughs) It has its moments and people just get to be who they are and be loved for who they are and there's power in that. Yeah. Plus it has Ron Swanson. Oh gosh, my favourite. That's who I am in Parks and Rec. I am Ron. (laughs) I'm especially Ron when he has the circular desk and someone comes to talk to him and he just (laughs) just keeps moving. That's me when people try to comment to me on social media pages that I manage. I'm like, nope. I think my goal is to be like a cross between Chris Traeger and Leslie Nope, but I am like 100% (laughs) and... As I was running today, I was thinking, jogging, it keeps you healthy, but But at what cost? So true. Anyway, so like, you know, growth. Growth is good. Growth is good. TV shows and books that have people growing and changing are the bee's knees. Hmm. Do you think Richard figured anything out from this? Do you think that he did well here? I think he did really well. I think he recognized that he was not the most important part of the story. Not that I think Richard was ever kind of egotistical and thinking that he was very important, but he did spend a lot of time just wanting to go home, right? And that was his main motivating thing. And now that's not. His thing is like, oh, okay, we need to save Dor. And then it's like, oh, we actually need to stop Islington from doing what he wants to do. So I thought that was something. And he was so willing to lay down his life for that. And when he says, you know, we don't matter, I was like, oh, Richard, you should have some self-respect. And that's why I love when the Marquis is like, actually, I do matter. (laughs) But yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think Richard did really well trying to help as best as he could. And the Marquis did really well. as. I think his character development is really clear in this as well. The fact that he turns up and that he's also just willing to do what needs to be done. I thought it was interesting when Croup, tells Mr. Vandermar to cut Richard's ear off and Richard's like, you know, trying to send a mental message to Dor and he's like, don't let them make you do... Yeah, I'll be fine. And then Mr. Vandermar put a little pressure on the knife and Richard became to scream. And I'm like, yeah, okay, see, heroism only takes you so far. It's still going to hurt. Like, pain and reality still hurts. That's not to say... Yeah, it makes him more of a hero, but... I think in his head he was like, oh, this will be fine. And then it was, oh, okay, actually the reality of the situation is worse than I thought it was going to be. There's definitely moments where, like, mind over matter does happen, like when I don't want to go for a run Mm. because it's going to rain six inches today, but I do it anyway. And then there's, like, you know, when you're trying to give birth to someone who's decided to turn around the wrong way and it hurts a lot. Mm. (laughs) So, So I think that, like, you just underestimate how much you can actually put up with. And, like, we all survive pain, right? Yeah. Pain doesn't actually kill us. It's like the thing that 
signals to us that something is wrong. But it is a genuine feeling. It is something we're actually experiencing. Yeah, I've heard that before as well. People like, pain is not actually a real thing. It's a construct. So you can just tell yourself not to feel pain. But (laughs) anyone who's attempted it will tell you that that's not... I don't know what level of meditation I would need to be at for that to be a thing. It's physical. (laughs) Yeah, I had a headache the other day that was so bad I couldn't think around it. And I was like, okay, I just definitely can't willpower my way out of this one. Hmm. I didn't even do anything to deserve that headache. No, of course you didn't. I really love the line on page 325 where Richard like has this thought, in a time of scary things, it was the most frightening thing Richard had seen. Um, it was when Islington loses the plot. And then there's that line, it screamed at them, crazy scary and uncontrolled, utterly certain in its rightness. And that utterly certain in his rightness, which to me, I just wrote down, that is the sign of true madness. It's when you are utterly convinced that you're doing the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not allowing any other perspectives in at that point. Mm. Those poor Atlanteans. I wonder what they did. <laughs> or what they didn't do. Because I'm pretty sure that uh, that city did not sink on its own. <laughs> it's genocide, but why? Like, I don't get it. Couldn't you just scare them a little bit? Burning bush or, I don't know. <laughs> Small fire? <laughs> Send some people down from a mountain with some stone tablets? Yeah, the classics. Come on. You've got a playbook right there. I also thought it was kind of heroic when Dor looked at it with utter contempt. Because I think that's really a brave and powerful thing, having contempt for an angel, even though it is a bad angel. You know, she looked at him with contempt. Wow, okay, go Dor. Because I have that Christian upbringing, angels are divine beings, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, they exist apart and separate. So I can't help but read Islington as being, like, a heavenly creature. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. That's just encoded into my understanding. And it's it's supported by the text, so I feel comfortable with that. But yeah, Dora's making an ultimate power move there where she's just like, nah, bro. And then later when, you know, she reveals that she had a, a copy of the key made and Islington's like, but it opened the door. And Dora replies that, no, I opened a door. And as far as a hard way as I could, I opened a door. I'm like, so empowered. So great. She's, she's like, no, I did that. Not some dumb key, you idiot. The description of her opening the door as well when she... You know, it says finding those places inside herself that corresponded with the door. I think it's so interesting that she has to look inside herself to find a place to open the door to. So how much does it cost her to find what is essentially a black hole in herself to open that door? Like that has to be a pretty dark place within herself that she's gone to. True. But her entire family was just murdered by this guy. So this is true. Although her sister might still be alive. Yeah, that was a bit ambiguous, wasn't it? I think she is still alive. I think so too. Wherever she is, can't she portal out of there? Maybe. Maybe she's tired eventually. Up. Yeah, or hungry, or exhausted, or mm, scared. Maybe I've yeah. got the feeling she was quite young. I think if we think back a couple of chapters way back, she was nine or ten, wasn't she? Yeah, and there was a conversation that Islington had with Croup before we knew it was Islington, where he said the other one wouldn't work. I wonder if that means that, like, you mature into your ability to open doors. Mm. I like to think that after this, the next adventure is going to be to find Dor's sister. I think that's a great adventure. Hmm. If I could write a fan fiction, I would mm-hmm. write that one. Where they go on an adventure to find her sister. And Richard grows up. And doesn't ask any dumb questions. Or he does, but like not just to howl about how he knows better because whatever. This can't He's be. experienced something. Um, yeah, I think that Dor having a whole backup plan in her pocket was like the best moment. I loved that. 
she'd completely independently engineered a failsafe. And she executed it so, like, calmly and just perfectly. Amazing. And I'm so proud of the Marquis because he got his soul back and he's still himself, so we can love him now. Yeah. It's much softer now. We needed that. I thought it was quite lovely when there's that line right at the end where the Marquis watched the sleeping children. I thought that was quite compassionate just because he took the time to recognize them as sleeping children. But I also love that he saw Richard as a child because Richard often sees Dor as a child, which is yeah. weird. And so for them both to be seen as children by the Marquis, I thought was quite cool. I, yeah, I saw a lot of compassion in the way that Richard just like held and looked after Dor. Yeah. But also, I loved that the Marquis was the one to kind of say, oh, right, I've got to just get her to mm. sort herself out in this, like, immediate short term. And he was like, snap out of it. Do the thing you need to do. I wrote down, I wrote down brood <laughs> margins. It was very rude, but I love that. What was it that Richard said? It was on page 334. Door, said the Marquis. Snap out of it. It was good that he was saying it, thought Richard. Somebody had to, and Richard could no longer remember how to talk. Mm. I thought that was so true because... She does get very vague and, like, fades away after a big opening. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Marquis was like, right, there are actually still steps we need to do. Like, there are things that need to happen. Um, That was really very clever of him. So, well done. Mm, He got it done. Exactly. And then Richard cuddled her and sang her some sort of wordless lullaby. and Which was really lovely. It really was. Mm. A lot of good compassion and a lot of good heroism in these chapters. I feel satisfied. The rising action rose, and I'm I'm happy that the circumstances of the book rose with it. I agree. It is satisfying. You're right. It finishes strong. I mean, we're not yeah. done yet. We've got two more chapters. But I mean, I, I was reading this book. I'm like, there was a reason I liked it. I swear. I just... Uh, anyway, it's fine. We'll discuss that later. <laughs> I think it was really hard, and it hasn't been an easy couple of weeks for us for lots of various reasons we've had some Mm. challenges but a lot of the subject matter was really tricky yeah and to go deep on something that very casually deals with horrible things it's not easy but like my brother-in-law said we are the kind of people who are locking ourselves in a room with us for 10 weeks to understand it better uh yeah i agree i think if you just read it in a single sitting or over a couple of days then you're not spending that much time right but it's the close reading that really forces Mm -hmm. you to confront the things that maybe normally you would just kind of gloss over Oh yeah, I definitely skim over horrible bits when I don't have to read them. But that's because I read like a skipping stone, right? Mm-hmm. I go across the surface and I touch it every so often. But we like fully rolled in and swam to the bottom every week. It's really, I've definitely gotten a lot out of it though. Like I think it's very worthwhile, which is why we're doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you have any tangential marginalia? Did I? So firstly... You know how throughout this book we've gotten annoyed because Dora's often described as like pixie-like and this and that. And we're like, oh, okay, we get it. It's not as bad as Hunter being a, a caramel slice. But... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, we get it, manic pixie dream girl. But for some reason on page 321, when Richard recognizes her odd colored pixie eyes, I just had this epiphany. Is Dora being referred to as a pixie or elfin actually less to do with her appearance and more about her magic? Like this is just what she is. She is Mm. a pixie. Pixie Pixie-like. Well, I mean, if you think about fairy mounds and barrows and, like, crossing into... Like, I love fairy magic so much and I love 
I love different takes on the lore and I love reading old fairy stories. Like I have so, I have so much folklore and fairy lore in my house. It's not even funny. Um, the thing about pixies and fae is that you do cross into a land where time is different. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what's happened. She crossed into Richard's world and took him back with her. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's been spirited away to fairyland, basically like that. This is a, a fairy story. So I think that it definitely is. It's like an unconscious reference, maybe, to the pixie-like nature of her. But I reckon she's, yeah, I'm going to call it. She's magic. She's a fairy. Yeah, agreed. It never bothered me as much as the caramel slice nonsense. I'll just say that. I didn't mind opal-colored eyes at all because the fact that she was described as younger was more problematic for me and anything to do with Hunter was more problematic with me. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that the Hunter descriptions were hard. But for some reason, I just get really annoyed by all the repeated descriptions. But then when I was like, oh, actually, is it to do with her magic? Because that makes me kind of more forgiving of that. Mm, Yeah. So, yeah. Like, oh, this is there for a reason. Okay. Rather than just hammering home that she's a manic pixie dream girl. Okay. Even though that term didn't exist in 1997 or whatever it was. Yeah. It wasn't just Garden State, right? Garden State kind of was like the peak of it. I think that's where it started, wasn't it? uh, No, because there was that other one with, um, I don't know, the like girl who makes you change your life because she's so wistful and dreamlike that's been around for a while yeah there maybe was just a heyday for a while there because you had garden state you had 500 days of summer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all those zoe deschanel characters basically yes and wasn't wasn't there one with kirsten dunst as well oh yeah and was that the one with legolas or was that a different one elizabeth town yeah that was she one. also a manic pixie dream girl in that i've actually never seen that I don't know. I Just when you said when you said Legolas, I'm like, oh yeah, he was in that film. <laughs> I knew you would know. It's the only thing that I have seen Orlando Bloom in that is not Lord of the Rings is Pirates of the Caribbean, which I also think is an incredible film, and I don't care who knows that. The first Pirates of the Caribbean film. I was actually thinking, do you think that my daughter would be ready for it? She's almost ten. It's a bit scary. It is a bit scary. I think it's probably less scary than Orcs, though. Yeah, that's true. And I think if you're with her when she's seeing it, it's okay. Yeah, I looked on IMDb because they have a really great, like, parent section where every single helicopter parent has, like, weighed in on exactly what nudity and, like, drug use. And, like, at one point they were like, Elizabeth Swan's dress gets wet, but you can't see very much. But it does get wet. And it's white. (laughs) I'm just like, thank you, concerned parents of America. I love it. I do love, I love that film. I can still quote basically the whole film. That's pathetic, but I can, and I don't. I care. honestly think I only saw it the once. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> just I can't remember seeing it more than once. I was just obsessed with it. I don't know what it was. I just would watch. I would finish watching it, and I just watch it again. I watched it probably thirteen times the first Listen, time I had it's the DVD. Kira Knightley, okay. Oh my gosh. You don't have to apologize. We all love her. I love the reframing of that as being like, this is Kira Knightley. Like, this is Elizabeth Swan's story. She's the hero of the story. Everyone else, get wrecked. <laughs> she is the best, though. That's great. Big She's fan. like Dora. She's very resourceful. Hmm. And she has to do it all in a corset. Historical costume side of Tumblr has a lot of issues with that because tight lacing was not a thing then, allegedly. But that's okay. We're going to let it rest because the rest of the movie is so solid. Oh, well. I think the rest of the film is also not historically accurate, so we might just have to let it slide. I mean, fair enough. They are magical pirates who turn into skeletons. So, yeah. Um, The other bit of tangential marginalia I had was around Islington's toxic masculinity. Yeah. He is so affronted... Oh, they are so affronted 
okay, I think this is why I keep stumbling on Heave this time, too. Because Islington did a bunch of gross stuff that yeah. was, like, very male-coded. And it was very straight-up toxic masculinity because the whole reason they get mad at Portico is because Portico laughs at him, which is that classic thing that, you know, Margaret Edwards said that men are afraid women will laugh at them and women are afraid mm-hmm. that men will kill them. Like, this is the ultimate insult to Islington is that he was laughed at. And then it's all just a bad rejection allegory. Like, Dor actually said, Dor shook her head, you killed him because he turned you down. What is that if not toxic masculinity? Yeah, yeah. There's no reason to kill an entire family. The long game would have been getting someone on side who is an opener and winning them over really slowly. You, look, you have to do this like Dumbledore would do it, right? You pull all of the pieces together over like 20 years. mm And then you do it. You don't try and get it done in, like, a weekend. Yeah, and I don't understand what Islington's hurry is. Like, theoretically, they've been locked up for millennia. So what's another 20 years? Well, because they ran out of wine. (laughs) Oh, the last of the Atlantean wine. Is that the whole thing that spurred this on? (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) I love that as a motivation. Actually, the... Mentioning the wine reminds me of something like, because Richard, when he first arrives, says this is the hall where we first drank Islington's wine, right? He has mm-hmm. that recollection. And it made me think of this whole kind of law of hospitality, which I'm not 100% sure. When I was in Scotland, a tour guide told me about this whole thing that, you know, if someone takes you into their house and you share their food and their wine, then you're supposed to be protected. Like you can't then kill each other. And I don't know if that's true, but that's it, also the whole premise of Game of Thrones is that if you let someone into the house and then you share food, you're not supposed to kill them, which is why the Red Wedding is such a big deal. And then I don't oh, know is if it? Those... Oh, is that why? Not just because they literally murdered everybody in the Yeah, room. but they were also okay. there under the, the law of protection or the... the... Oh, yeah, okay. the sacred guest thing. Anyway, I've forgotten what it's called. But I don't know if it's a real thing or if it's just a Game of Thrones thing. But anyway, it just really reminded me of that. It's like Islington had invited them into his hall and shared their wine with them and then turns around and is like, nah, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I just thought of vampires and being invited in. But like the reverse of that, maybe like because they took this wine from Islington, he can reframe it as a justification. I don't know. Mm, interesting. I just, yeah, it was just something that... I was like, oh, I wonder if there's anything there. But hmm. Um. So my only tangential marginalia was why is Islington so gross? Why the thing with the key, mm. where Islington oh, was like oh, fondling the ah. key, and I actually wrote it down, but I got like creepy shivers writing it down. It was so yucky. I'll read it out to you, and I'm sorry mm. to all of our listeners because it's super yucky. Um. It tugged gently on the chain, pulling it out from under Dor's layers of silk and cotton and lace, revealing the silver key, and then it ran its fingers over the key as if it were exploring her secret places. I hated that. Ew! I couldn't even, like... Right? I just went, no, can't can't deal with this, and just skipped over it. So there's this implied violation, and it's obviously a gendered violation, and I hate it. And I think this is why we're both struggling with the they because because Islington's acting like the worst kind of dude. Mm -hmm. And I would like to say right here on the record that this is not a men problem, but a toxic masculinity problem. It's a patriarchy problem. But the way that Islington is acting is very much like how somebody who is male or male presenting would hurt somebody who's female. Yeah. 
And I think especially in the light of, you know, not being able to take rejection, not being able to handle taking no for an answer and then Mm -hmm. reacting in this violent retribution way. Yeah, that was my, uh, like, I just got super grossed out by it. I was like, there's no need for the angel Islington to suddenly be a lech. And it feels weird, too, because if you're a heavenly being who was beyond human life and, you know, treats humans as insects, then why would you do this? Yeah, there's no reason. It's just, it seems like Islington is super enjoying Dora's discomfort. Unless that's just Richard's reading of it, right? Because we're seeing it through his eyes. That's true. It's not good. Yeah. Um, I did kind of enjoy, though, that on page 311, there's just this line of, like, it was gravity because the whole world had tilted on its side and sucked the air out. Mm. And I was just like, and Islington's like, you mad little witch, what have you done? And I love the idea that even an angel can't fight physics. It's like, sorry about it. Off you go. (laughs) I love that, too. It doesn't matter how divine you are. If you get sucked into a sun, you get sucked into a sun. The vortex comes for us all. (laughs) (laughs) New tattoo idea. <laughs> no more memento more. Just <laughs> the vortex comes for us all. Ask not for who the black hole comes. It comes for you. <laughs> if you guys get this tattoo, we want to see it. Okay. Hello at marginaliapod.com. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. I think that's it for this chapter for me. What about you? The only other thing that I had was about the bloody Gabriel for a start reference. Because Gabriel is also in Good Omens, which is another Neil Gaiman novel. And so I just want to go ahead and believe that all of this happens in the same universe. Mm, Such a good book. I know, it's so fun. It's a really joyful take on the apocalypse. Perfectly cast as well in the TV show. Yeah, thank you. Whoever decided that What's-His-Face should be Newton Pulsifer, you got it. Jack Whitehall. (laughs) Yes, yes, he's perfect. He was perfectly cast. Look, I have the same problem with technology. I don't know what I do, but it breaks in the weirdest ways. So I really, yeah. Good times. So did you have a character you'd like to spotlight this week? Okay, so I could not pick between the three major amazing characters, but I will pick now and I will say, I think that the Marquis is the person I want to spotlight. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, and we already talked about this a bit, but I mean, he really just turned up and was himself, (laughs) but in the best possible way. But he still showed up, like when I talk about parenting, like it's quantity. You always try and do your best, right? But it's really just the being there. And so people who show up for me, that's a really big deal. Like that is, if you show up for me, that's the love language. That's you saying like, I honor you and I love you and I care enough to keep turning up. So the fact that he showed up, even though he didn't have anything to offer no plans no schemes no favors to call in Mm. he still turned up that is huge so people out there if you are turning up even if you feel like you're not doing anything or contributing anything of value i promise you are just by showing up somebody is seeing that noting that and feeling loved Mm. that's lovely how about you i was gonna spotlight door because she is her own dang hero saving all the men who thought they were going to save her. And I love it. And, you know, she asked for help when she needed it on this journey. And that really allowed her in the end to save the day. She just really had a plan. She executed it. She had help, but when she needed it, she knew her own boundaries. She knew her own limitations. She worked within them. And I just think, you know, a cheer for all the smart, strong, independent women out there. Just getting things done. Yeah. Getting things done. Despite Richard, who might be telling you that this can't be because this is not how (laughs) I view the world. No. Just do your thing. I think it's good sometimes to have the friend who's kind of a downer like Richard is because then you get the opportunity to say, how much am I going to accept or reject this? Mm. We have a thing in our house where 
sometimes I'll need to make a decision, but I can't make it unless I have like a position to oppose or agree with. Oh, interesting. So if I have like if I'm undecided between two fabrics, I'll take them to my husband and I will say, you need to pick which one would be better. And if he picks and I'm like, oh, no, you're wrong. Mm. Then I know that I really want the other one. But if I agree with him, then I'm like, okay. And I do see this a little bit with with Dor seeing Richard fumbling along I think has maybe given her more direction Mm. because she has the knowledge she knows what's happening in the world she understands her place in it and having to guide someone through what is meant to be this quest where she's fumbling but actually she's the one with the knowledge that's got to be kind of a boost so yeah that's interesting I do that too but I do it with coin flips so I'll be like heads I'll do this tails I'll do this and then when I get the wrong you know when you get the wrong answer you're like oh Mm -hmm. I don't actually want to do that then you know yeah yeah Yeah, it can only work on low stakes things. I just look, I'm being such an adult this week and I'm real salty about it. So, well, good on you. Well, next week we're going to be reading chapters 19 and 20 through the theme of shame. And it's our last week with this book, which is just crazy. We'll do a little book wrap up too, I think. Yeah. Probably pick a little favorite marginalia. I think we should do that. What do you think? That sounds lovely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for parting with me. It was amazing. Thank you. Always a pleasure. So good. I'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at www.marginaliapod.com.